0: Hello and welcome to the Manchester Age Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston, I am your host today, and we are recording on a mild Friday afternoon here in Salford, and I'm joined by my colleagues Rich Faye and Dan Murphy.
1: Rich, how are you today? Well, you say it's a mild Friday, I think it's about to heat up, isn't it, Stephen? I mean, this, this hot chat we're about to bring, but yeah, I'm good, thank you very much. Looking forward to just the week ending and not having to write the word Ronaldo for, for a day or two would be nice.
0: I would say it's only going to become hot because we're in the presence of Dan Murphy. Dan, how are oh, you?
2: you too can you too, too and It's in contrast because I'm absolutely bloody freezing because, you know, the <laughs> heating is not going on. It can't go on, especially when we're recording because it would just be very loud as well. And we've got the little portable heater next to me. But as I am in the same boat as Rich, sick of writing about Ronaldo. So let's talk about him instead for an hour or so. But, eh?
0: Of course, I think you need to win the lottery these days to put the heating on. Uh, mm-hmm. None of us have done that. Right, we'll just get straight into it, Rich. Obviously, Ronaldo had his second part of his interview with Piers Morgan on Thursday night. Obviously, the first part went out on Wednesday. It's been teasers all week, promotional material getting you know dripped into social media. It's been pretty explosive. We did discuss it earlier in the week, but we will analyse his comments from Thursday night um, and at the end of the podcast, maybe discuss some World Cup stuff. But to begin with, Ronaldo... Obviously, I think he started off his interview. He discussed and um, leaving that game at half-time. Um, I know, obviously, a few players did leave with him. Um, and he also discussed the Tottenham incident, his, his outburst at Tottenham when he stormed down the tunnel. And I think he said he was provoked by Ten Hagrich um, at Tottenham when Ten Hag obviously asked him to come on in the, the game. Um, in my opinion, obviously, he's the highest earner at the club. I think he should go on regardless. I think it was a bit disrespectful to Ten Hag to, to turn that down. So... What did you think about those comments really and, and what was your reaction on, on Thursday night watching the interview?
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head there, haven't you? That I mean, You can't talk about disrespect and complain about not being brought on against City and then in the very similar situation then try and take the higher ground and say, well, I'm not coming on for this one. And th- There is no disrespect from the manager there. Obviously, it's not the role that maybe Ronaldo intended and, and wanted to have. But again, it just boils down to the fact that this is someone... He was losing control and getting very desperate to try and regain that. I mean, what purpose has he had for United this season? He scored three goals. His last goal from open play, I think, was, was that April or so? I mean, he's not been doing anything, really. He's scored that tapping, didn't he, against Sherif? Um, I think last Premier League goal from open play was April or so. I mean, he's just not offered anything to this United team. There's been very little. And I just... I just find it so bitter for him, really. He's just going out sort of Alan Partridge style, isn't he? Trying to take the BBC <laughs> with him or whatever. I mean, he's just completely thrown his toys at the pram. And I don't know what he ever thought would happen from this interview. I, I I find it baffling that he thinks that he maybe has this aura where the fans would have been like, oh, yeah, Ronaldo, you're so right. We're so sorry that you never got your chance. Ten Hag's the wrong man here. And Ten Hag struggled. There's been questions about him. But this has unified him even more. And for Ronaldo to come out and even suggest that he's been disrespected, given what he's actually done. He wanted to leave the club. He timed that poorly in the summer. At the time, he said he was happy with the way United had handled the situation. Um, of course, there are two sides to every story there. He's saying now that he wasn't happy with it. But since then, he's not handled himself with any respect towards United at all. And there's a hypocrisy of that because before he even makes his comment, he's already undermined what he's trying to say. You can't accuse a team of disrespect when you've done what he's done and he's done it so consistently as well. It's not just one, one-off one And we said after the valor game, I think we said at the Tottenham game as well, this is kicking the can down the road. He's had this outburst, but that doesn't mean it's solved. There's been no solution there. It's just, oh, he's apologised. He's made up for his actions or whatever. And, you know, you've got to wonder what Ten Hag and Ronaldo said in those conversations after those incidents, because there was this impression that it had all been resolved and Ronaldo was still a key part going towards the end of the season. There's an element of club rhetoric there where you've got to toe the party line and say, Ronaldo's fine, we're happy with him, he's still got a key role to play, blah, blah, blah. But what was actually said, because surely Ten Hag was sold this vision that Ronaldo was still committed and was still happy, and then he's just gone behind his back and done this. It's just treachery, really, from Ronaldo's point of view. Um, he's now got a manager who doesn't owe him anything. Solskjaer was maybe overawed by him a little bit, and even maybe didn't want to sign him himself, but Solskjaer was still his friend. They played together, you know, they, they knew each other. Ten Hag owes him nothing. a bit of breath, fresh air. Ronaldo's cut his his ties and he just needs to go.
0: I found it sad, Rich, to be honest, watching that interview last night. I felt like it's one of these all-time greats and kind of reducing himself to this interview of Piers Morgan out of all people. I I felt it was a bit sad, actually. I did watching him speak. Um, Dan, he kind of said that Ten Hag hasn't given him the kind of respect that he deserves, I think was the quote. Um, that, That gave me the impression that he kind of wants special treatment, he doesn't want to be treated equally. Is was that your interpretation of those comments?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like, I resent him enough for having to kind of make me watch Piers Morgan for two hours <laughs> uh, this week, which was really, really difficult. The most perhaps the most difficult thing I've ever done in this job, but as you say, it's it was just um, it was a conversation of uh, contra- contradictions. Now, if you let anyone ramble on for 90 minutes, I'm sure we'd all be guilty of kind of doing the same thing, but as um, our colleagues Tyrone and Samuel, who are uh, on the podcast today, have really eloquently written in today's pieces. Um, Samuel points out how Piers Morgan just didn't press him on any of the um, uh, the kind of facts to the story. How Ronaldo did want to leave and then Ronaldo saying he chose to stay and various other kind of inaccuracies that Morgan did not, <laughs> I know as a self professed journalist, did not press him on whatsoever. It was clearly just a kind of PR piece. I mean, Piers, you talk about Solskjaer being overawed, I think Piers Morgan was absolutely buzzing to be talking with Ronaldo, his nose couldn't get much browner. And um, Tyrone kind of correctly points out how it was just full of contradictions. At one point, point, and this was like a mute point compared to the rest of his kind of shots at Ten Hag and, and the club and whatnot. But um, he says at one stage that the, the youth of today don't listen. Um, don't want to take advice. And then in the very next breath says he doesn't give advice. He likes to lead by example. And then he says he wants to lead by example. And then we have the Tottenham um, scenario and the outburst. And it's just it's just such an inelegant kind of die r- raging against the light. I think it's a player who is just not, he's 37. I don't think there's any shame in not being as good as you once was. And, he, he, uh, you know, we've spoken ad nauseum on this podcast, I imagine, and uh, in our articles of how, Ronaldo came in last year and he still held up his end of the bargain. He did score goals, but the team as a whole suffered. The season before Ronaldo came, United scored 121 goals um, throughout the season. This The season with him, he, this, that went down to 71. So while he still held up his end of the bargain, and United would have been without a striker if it wasn't for Ronaldo due to Cavani being AWOL and injured, um, Rashford being really out of form, Greenwood's situation, Marshall. injured and then out on loan so they would have been without Ronaldo I don't think we should kind of disregard what he did do last season even if the team suffered but this year he's 37 those powers do wane it just seems like someone who isn't being able to kind of accept that and when you you know when you kind of age which is natural to everyone as Rooney kind of correctly pointed out he's struggling to deal with it whereas you know the, the example that's coming straight to my head and obviously not nowhere near the same level of player but James Milner He's gone from like a regular player for Liverpool, playing all the time, an important player, and now he has a bit part role, filling in at right back or left back or you know anywhere across the pitch, and he does that with grace, and and everyone respects Milner as a result. Whereas Ronaldo obviously cannot accept that he isn't the starter anymore. It must have been some blow when he announced, you know, it was brief that he wanted to leave United. He, he expected to go to a Champions League club, and none of them came calling, and because. He is just not compatible to big teams the modern game. He can't press. He's immobile. He's static. He may score, or he did score at least last season. And he just is not even doing that now. So, what you know, what's he going to do if he does leave United? It will be very interesting. You know, as, as Rich says, three goals this season, two of them coming against FC Sheriff, one a penalty, the other a pretty good finish against Everton um, when he kind of latched onto Casimiro's pass. There is still worth there, but he's not. Being able to kind of let go of what he used to be able to do, I don't think. And as I should say, he's taking aims at Ten Hag when I think we can all agree Ten Hag's done nothing. But if anything, be too lax to give him the armband, what was it, 18 days, two weeks after his outburst at Tottenham. Might have been a bit of a mistake on Ten Hag's part, but it was certainly an olive branch, I'd say, to a, a way for him to get back into the side, to let him come back in. And he's just kind of spat in his face with it, really.
0: Age catches up to everyone. I get tired walking up the stairs these days, so Ronaldo's not the only one. Richard, for talk about Ten Hag's kind of strength of character here and the way he's handled the situation, as Dan just alluded to, um, I kind of, I think I tweeted during the interview last night that he's probably the winner out of this interview. He said absolutely nothing since that uh, 2-1 defeat of Fulham at the weekend, and yet he's come out of all of this probably looking the best. Um, does it really bode well for the future that United have got a manager that can have the personality, have the character, that can stand up to a person like Ronaldo, not even stand up, just treat him equally and I guess stand up to him that way?
1: I think that, that is exactly what United needed and it feels like this year has been a real seismic change in terms of the sort of makeup of that dressing room. You talk about player power, in the summer they've lost Jesse Lingard, Paul Pogba, two very influential figures Ronaldo on his way out now as well. And there's a real chance there for this, this dressing room to be moulded into more of what Ten Hag wants, the right mentality, the right work ethic and, and a team of players who all buy into his ideas because at the very top level, and you see this all the time, the margins are so small and it is usually the unified dressing rooms that go on and have that success. And for United for too long, we we look at the post-Ferguson years and the criticism is always at the manager or the players, or the recruitment team, or the owners. And they all have a part to play. But a key element of that is just that the squads maybe haven't had that harmony all the time. There's been cliques still. There's been maybe there's not this unity. There's been players who are out of favour. And rather than using that as sort of fire to get back in the team, they've grovelled and they've complained and acted like the world's against them. And I think the biggest thing for Ten Hag going into next season, or next year rather, is that he should hopefully have a, a dressing room where everyone buys into his ideas All of his new players have had key prominent roles that just re-endorses and re-emphasises how good he is in the transfer market, gives himself more authority. And now, like you said, he's going to have even more power from this situation because not only does Ronaldo go out of the dressing room, which gives an opportunity for someone else to stand up, he's already earmarked De Gea, Varane and Casemiro as possible leaders, future captains maybe of the club as well. But you've also then got this dynamic where someone who can maybe contradict your opinions and can voice against you is gone. You've got even more power because you've come up with a situation so well. He's handled it so well. And most of all, the supporters are unanimous in in their support of Ten Hag because no one is bigger than Manchester United. And if there is one person who has that utmost authority, it is the manager. That is the way it should be. That is how it's historically always been for United in times of success. It all stops at the manager. He has ultimate decisions to make. Obviously, he has to go to the board and he's got people above him, but he is the face. He is the real key decision-maker at Manchester United and it's getting that way again. So I think it's just a win-win-win for for Ten Hag, really. He's come out of it very well. He's handled his side of the bargain well. You can understand Ronaldo's frustrations. Of course he can, but ultimately that is is his boss and you've got to respect that. You've got to respect his authority, which Ronaldo hasn't done. So yeah, I think Ten Hag is, is the real winner from all this
0: completely agree with that and I feel like there's going to be maybe a siege mentality after the World Cup in that dressing room. If Ronaldo goes, I say, right, come on guys, let's let we show them, let's come together, let's be united um, and, and let's push forward in the Ten Hag. Um, Dan, he, he talked about a suspension that happened after Tottenham, mm-hmm. Um, obviously he was frozen out, came back to Carrot in and, and trained with some coaches on his own, he was unavailable for the Chelsea game at Stamford Bridge. Um, he kind of expressed his disappointment at the way that was handled. He didn't think that suspension was warranted, and I, I did laugh at the story of him telling his son the information about what happened, and his son kind of said, "Daddy, how can they suspend you, the the best player in the world?" That was a funny line. So, but but surely, Dan, that you know that suspension, it was well deserved, wasn't it? You can't just storm off the pitch and be no consequences.
2: Yeah, I mean that that line was certainly a contender for didn't happen of the year. Uh, didn't happen of the year twenty twenty two. A late contender there, so he might win something uh, this year. Um, hopefully, not the World Cup, of course, which we'll get on to. But yeah, I mean, it's just the same. You know, the question you asked me earlier, which I kind of got lost in my rambling and forgot to actually answer. You know, it, it does just strike that he feels like he's above not only kind of the club, obviously, with the way he's talked about and kind of gone against the manager in such a public way, but that he feels like he's on a cut above some of the players. Like, oh, I'm a different player to everyone else. I shouldn't be subjected to a three-minute cameo at the end of a game. And, you know, the the, the comments about what Ten Hag said about the respect for not bringing on the City match and then trying to conflate the two is just kind of ridiculous. They were completely two different situations. You know, Ten, what Ten Hag, who is still kind of learning English as it is anyway, it's not his strongest language, and nor is it with Ronaldo. And you know we should be respectful for people speaking so openly in their um, second languages. But what Ten Hag was basically saying is, I don't want to bring Ronaldo on when uh, the United fans are obviously angry. They've just seen the team get absolutely battered by City. I don't want to bring him on and him have to face that. And the game's gone. Well, it might not have been with the way Martial was going if they had ten minutes more. But the game was gone. There was no use bringing on Ronaldo in that sort of situation. Whereas. At the Tottenham game, Old Trafford was bouncing. It was a great atmosphere. It had been the you know, uh, the kind of breakthrough performance of Ten Hag's reign. United have been absolutely excellent. Ronaldo, go on. Enjoy the last few minutes. The great atmosphere. Maybe grab yourself a goal with the ways it's going. And all can be butterfly and rainbows and we move on and together. And it'd be a great kind of unified front. But instead as is often the way, he kind of scored the headlines, he, he made it about himself after the Tottenham game, and then the Fulham match, after such a galvanising victory you know, Alejandro Ganaccio, the young star which, you know, there's not many young players um, probably in the United First team at the minute, so there can't be many he's on about in the, the interview, when he's kind of bemoaning the, the generation of today, Ganaccio goes out and does that, um, a great goal, very reminiscent of Ronaldo's against Fulham, um, way back when as well, of course, and again, the headlines are his, like the, the Chelsea match. What, what You can't not punish, you. any player would get punished the exact same. And if anything, he probably he probably got off lightly. Um, I know the Tevez situation at City a decade ago was slightly different with how that went. But he, go- well, it was more like self-exile in the end, wasn't it? But Mancini was like, he'll never play for me again after that. And it took months before he was back into the fold. So there was a way back for Ronaldo into the team after that, and he came in and he was given the armband. Uh, so the punishment was if anything, too lax. And he still had a problem with it. So, you know, it's just the bridges burn at this stage. I don't know how much of what Ronaldo said he actually kind of really means and stuff. I wonder if it, it just strikes as more of like a deliberate tactic to, to you know, to kind of get a his way thing, out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, the traditional way of leaving a club didn't work for him in the summer, did it? He briefed Agents knew he was available, teams knew he was available, and no one wanted him, um, at least to the level what he wanted to play at. So the traditional way of finding a new club didn't work. So maybe this is the way he's going about it this time around. And it's, you know, for, for United fans, I can imagine it's, it's quite it's quite a sad way for such a great and legendary player to really kind of tarnish his legacy. Because I remember... You know, I, I'm, I'm not a United fan, but I know loads of United fans. And I remember being in the pub after that Newcastle game and mates of mine charging in with Portugal flags, absolutely buzzing. Like, I, I, absolutely delighted that you know, the hero would come back, come back still firing, as it like, on that Newcastle game. And to see it end like this, I imagine, for United fans, is, 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 is quite uh, undignifying and quite sad.
0: It is quite sad. You're right, Dan. Uh, and obviously you said you feel like the bridges are burnt and I think you'd find... I find it hard to find someone that doesn't disagree with uh, with that. Um, You know, he he doesn't know about his future. That's what he kind of said, but it's obvious what's going to happen. It's obvious he's not going to play for the club again. Rich, today they released another statement. They were waiting for all the facts to be established, obviously, until the second part of the interview came out. Um, You wrote the line just before we came on there that the club are currently considering terminating his contract. So... Could you give one update on that, please, and kind of how would you see that kind of developing over the next week? Because I think I think Gary Neville was on there yesterday or so, and he went, look, United need to get this sorted in the next few days.
1: Yeah, I think from that point of view, it it benefits them if it's done before the World Cup and they can just get this sorted as, as soon as possible. Obviously, there's such mitigation in that and you can't really give a precise timeline. And that's maybe annoying because by the time you listen to this podcast, it might have happened. And by the time you listen to it, it obviously, it obviously might not have as well, but the word coming from United is, you know, they want this to be sorted as, as swiftly as possible. The sort of delay of it so far has been that they've had to wait for the for the interview to be aired because, you know, you've got to you know, give it and see it in its full context. Obviously, it was obvious what the tone of it was from the start of the week and the way it was drip fed and the platform and the the interviewee of, of, of what the content would be. But United had to at least wait for it to, to be aired and to, to view it properly in its full context before they could sort of evaluate what to do next so they're taking the appropriate next steps in terms of breach of contract all that there is loads of legality you've got to get into so that's why you've got to be cautious what you say at the moment but you know the belief is that United are at least considering terminating his contract looking into whether or not he has breached his contract and I'll get up the actual terminology now so when Ronaldo signed for United he will have signed an employment contract with the club and with the Premier League and now under this contract it states that all employees are obliged to comply with and act in accordance with all lawful instructions of any authorised official of the club. They are not allowed to write or say anything which is likely to bring the club into disrepute or cause damage to the club. Now obviously some of the things we've said you could, could certainly argue have done that so United need to get into the intricacies of it or the legality of it and see if there is enough there to determine if he has breached his contract and if so, to what extent. Um, obviously, then there's, there's you, know, you can terminate the contract perhaps and you could sue him. But then there's also United want this resolved as amicably, amicably as possible, which is very difficult. But obviously, Ronaldo could then maybe go back with his own sort of legal sort of counter-argument saying, well, I didn't do this. This is what I said. This is how I feel. I've got my own right to opinion or reply. So I think it will be a bit drag- dragged out a bit longer than the United one. Obviously, it seems like the most suitable scenario would be to, if possible, terminate his contract, everyone to move on and just nip it in the bud as quick as possible. But that is maybe a fanciful vision. Like I said, United will want to get this sorted as, as soon as possible, but it's not as easy as that because the legality and the legal issues involved it's so complex that it's difficult to to go into too many details but the belief and the feeling that I've been hearing is certainly that United are very happy to get rid now and you know that is deemed the next best step for the club.
0: Do you not fancy career change Rich? Better call Rich instead of better call Saul. I'd hate you. <laughs> if I was in trouble <laughs> I was well, very well, let's hope that. you don't
1: get into trouble I suppose and <laughs> i can't argue to that rather than I'll be your backup guy if that happens but yeah it's got, it's got to be interesting to see and like I said timeline's difficult because of the World Cup obviously Ronaldo would well he's still got the house hasn't he in Manchester he's still probably got most of his belongings at Carrington so it's a really weird situation but obviously we'll keep you up to date with that as, as and when things happen
0: It's a messy situation, like you said, and both sides, Well, United want to deal with it very well and don't want don't want it to increase the mess. But it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? It, it is really difficult. Um, Dan, one of the quotes he kind of said, I think he said, the press have been saying nobody wants us. If we're talking about you know, his next step and leaving the club, but he kind of called that out and he criticised that. But it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, the only offer we knew about was the concrete offer from Saudi Arabia. Confirmed that in the interview. We talked about his declining performances this season it also made us laugh he said I scored 32 goals last season and then he corrected himself Was like, and the national team not just mm. United I don't think I've saw a player talk about the goals he scored and then add the national team goes on but he seems a bit sensitive doesn't he and I know obviously look if you've been taking a barrage of abuse in, in stuff that you perhaps don't believe is true you're going to be agitated but I was a little bit surprised at how maybe sensitive he comes across is that fair? I
2: mean, I mean for a bloke who Apparently doesn't listen to any criticism and yeah, the media. Exactly, to then yeah. go, you know, to then go and spend a large portion of a ninety-minute interview, kind of pinpointedly pointing out all the criticism he's ever had in the last, you know, year <laughs> or so. You know, it's just kind of another contradiction that was littered with him, and it's. I think the whole thing is like just frustrating because he used the points which every United fan would agree with. Of course, the kind of deterioration of the club since Ferguson and probably before that and afterwards and whatnot, you know, he had that valid points and they just hold no weight now because they're clearly being used as a shield to kind of keep the fans on side. Cause he's saying, you know, we've seen the reaction on Twitter from those holdouts that, you know, the kind of Ronaldo fans on Twitter who, you know, probably aren't United fans are literally fans of the player rather than a club, but they, you know, he is right of what he said about deterioration under the Glazer ownership, and he said things that fans will agree with when he says that they don't care about the sport inside of the club, only the the marketing. I believe it was that he said, but they hold no weight now, and it's just used as a ploy to um. To, to kind of burn the bridge as I said if this had have been, if, you know it's, United haven't, if anything they've got better in the year since because I believe the kind of renovations of the gym was completed in the summer and stuff like that so improvements have been made in this year then he was there if, if he had said come out and said this when he first arrived uh, when United really really were in kind of a crisis um, somewhat and the Blazers really were under pressure when things weren't going well at all under Solskjaer and then Magnik. imagine how much kind of how much that would have meant then if, you know, the legendary player, the most, as Piers Morgan repeatedly pointed out, the most <laughs> famous person on planet Earth, you know, the most followed person on Instagram, um, the fruit that people want to bite, apparently. That was another one of his highlight quote for me. Um, if he had have said this back then... And actually, it would have shown that he did actually care about the club because it, he was there. He was still in the in the trenches. He was playing reasonably well. He was probably one of the few players, along with De Gea who came out unscathed last season after you know the West Premier League campaign ever. But he d- he didn't say it then because he was starting most matches. He was scoring. He was content with his own performances. If he had have heard those. Concerns with the club then, maybe things would look a lot different. But as I said, they've just been used now on top of everything else to it's just a naked attempt to at kind of engineer his move away because he's, he's out of favour now. and He's out of favour because this season he isn't scoring enough. It's not like he's not played. He's He's been on the bench a few times, but he played um, the last... Before kind of um, Fulham, I believe, and before he, he came down with an illness, he started four matches on the spin and scored only in the Europa League. Like he's been playing, he's just not really been delivering. And you know, United's best results this season—they beat Liverpool, they beat Tottenham, they beat Arsenal, and they've drawn with Chelsea. All those games came when Ronaldo wasn't there. The, the defeats to Villa and um, the defeats uh, earlier in the season the, uh, came when Ronaldo was there. And it's it's undisputable now this season. United are better without Ronaldo in the starting eleven, And that is a fact that it seems to be the main instigator in all this. And it's the fact that Ronaldo doesn't seem to be able to accept. I mean, you know, we must say this drive and this self-desire and this self-confidence are probably the qualities that have made him the best player in the world. The Probably, well, I think Messi's the best player in the world, of course, but the best, undisputedly, the best <laughs> goal scorer. Always, always. Um, undisputedly the best goal scorer of all time, though. And to remain on the top of his game, for the last two decades, he wouldn't have done that without all these these attributes that are now kind of obviously leading to this uh, undignified uh, uh, end to the final swan song.
0: It is a fact that United are better off without him. Nail on the head, Dan. But I have to ask: if Ronaldo was a strawberry that people want to bite, what fruit would you be if you had to pick fruit?
2: <laughs> the first one that you goes to, Eddie, is just banana, innit? It's, it's undeniable that banana is the first one you go to. But I hate bananas. Like they they annoy me. This they, are oh,
0: something oh we're gonna get me out of time. You just said to you hate there. yourself, Dan.
2: You just. Said, I do. I thought you'd slip that. I thought you'd slip. Whoa. apple, it, nice pink lady apple, best fruit. Go. It started Rich, as the worst me?
1: question. Well, it started as the worst question of all time. but Then you've you've gone really in depth there on Murph. You've you've gone real deep into a psyche, of his own self doubt and self loathing. So <laughs> Listen, fantastic. I hate
2: bananas. Mm. Bananas, right. There's so much trouble for what they're worth. They brew so easily and they've got their own... Oh, don't get me started, honestly. We won't get
1: into the
0: banana analysis. Rich, don't. what would you be? Would you be an orange?
2: I'd say I'm a pear. A pear? When
1: Good I'm the best, I'm the best fruit in the world. But that's very, very, nah. very few times that happens. Usually yeah. too soft. Or usually Never too ripe too enough. Horrible. Never ripe enough.
0: Anyways, yeah. we've probably spent around 60 seconds on fruit talk. So we'll go back to the football. Ronaldo started it. He did. he did. He did, yeah, in his interview. But Ronaldo talked about Sir Alex Ferguson, Rich, and... Obviously he played a massive role in coming back to the club. Without him, it wouldn't have happened. We know he gave Ronaldo that call. He went, Okay, boss, I'm coming back. I'll come to Old Trafford. Um, he kind of said, Look, Fergie's always on my side, no matter what, he understands what's going on. I completely agree in the sense that Ferguson won't be happy in the direction the club has gone. He'd be aware of the problems. But I think it's a bit of a a bit of a stretch to say that Ferguson would be on his side in this scenario, surely, would it?
1: It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we we'll can't answer a father- for Ferguson. No, yeah. exactly. And Ferguson is such a strong father figure in Ronaldo's life. You know, he is almost like a surrogate son to, to him. That you know, Ronaldo idolizes this man, and you know that is just sort of fatherly instinct to stick by your own and to have their back. And without you know, without Ferguson, there is no Cristiano Ronaldo as we know him today. You know, he, he's such an important figure in his life. Played such a key role in guiding him. Knew how to manage him perfectly. He he panded to certain aspects of his ego that he needed. He knew how to take him under his wing, show him tough love at times when he needed it, you know, introduce him slowly but surely enough to the first team, gave him the number seven shirt. You know, Ferguson has played such an integral part of it and there's such a love there. Not just a respect, a love. You know, I remember Champions League final in Cardiff afterwards, as Ronaldo and Ferguson and his eyes light up when he sees him and you know it's lovely to see and I think it is a difficult one, isn't it? Because Ferguson, the manager, would probably sympathise. I mean, it's difficult because Ferguson, the manager, probably wouldn't have over wouldn't have oversaw this disaster of United's spell. You know, the reason is since he's gone, it's been bad. But Renat Ferguson did have sympathy with some of his under some some of the key players because he knows what it means for them. I mean, look back to when Kansnar, you know, had his had his sort of outbursts and stuff you know Ferguson knew how to manage him he knew how to take care of him so I think it is a stretch to say Ferguson would condone this but you know we you know condone it say yeah I understand where Ronaldo's coming from there's got to be a point where the manager has utmost authority but like Dan said before that Ronaldo's undoing is what made him so great in the first place it's that relentless desire to win to be the very best in the world to and that was always the argument that that Messi's naturally talented and Ronaldo's made it for himself. He's worked so hard for it. You can't deny that. In terms of an actual athlete and a trainer, that's all great qualities of Ronaldo because he has this just desire. That it hurts him not to be the best in the world and it must hurt him so much that he last time he was at United, he literally had won the Ballon d'Or. He literally was the best player in the world and now he's come back. His power's away wane. The club's not what it used to be. Everything's just stuck in the past, really, so... I think Ferguson would have sympathy with Ronaldo, understand where his anger and feelings come from. But ultimately, if you, you cannot undermine a Manchester United manager. That is just not the way the club's history has ever been. And the manager has to have the utmost respect. And Ronaldo's not giving that to Ten Hag.
0: I think there's a quote going around on social media, actually, um, from Fergie's book. And I think it's in reference to David Beckham leaving the club. and He basically says, look, the second the player goes against the manager, he needs to go. And obviously fans have been posting that in the masses with this situation going on and using that as a as a kind of case study. Dan, before we get into a few World up bits, because we're getting to the half an hour mark yet, could you kind of give us your your closing feelings or your, your summary of this whole scenario? Because it's dominated headlines all week. We've wrote a ton of articles about it. It's been the, the chat on the podcast. What has been your overriding emotion when you've, as you've saw this come out? Because for me, it was initially surprise and I think obviously a bit of shock, but I think as the week has went on, It's probably for me turned into a bit of sadness to see a fantastic player, one of the world's best players ever had to go out like this.
2: The only word that was going through my head after I I was on for Wednesday when the first part was shown uh, on uh, Talk TV, I think it was. And the only word I could really think of, I I, I can't remember, I think this bit, I think part one, he really talked mostly about the, the passing of his baby boy, which... She probably shouldn't be forgotten in all of this uh, you know you can't imagine any sort of grief not I, none of us have children i can't even comprehend the sort of anguish and and i, and I thought one really interesting bit that he like said was like he didn't he had to be happy but he all sorry he had to be sad but he also had to be happy because obviously bella his daughter the, the other twin survived and it was such a weird contrast like that the, the the grief of the death must have been can't be comprehended on its own but then to have to be happy at the same time I, I can imagine that is an absolutely whirlwind of emotions and you know maybe any sort of acting out can can kind of be understood through that prism and so I can't want really to say that and it was horrible before I kind of say but my overriding feeling of it and every and I thought that was the only bit when he was sympathetic cause that was the only bit when he felt he was real it was the only bit when he felt like he was really speaking kind of from the heart and from kind of just anything that, that, that there was the only bit that I didn't really have any other motivation behind it, I think. And the other motivations, as we said, was all, all football related. And the only way I could think of was kind of nauseating. And it just felt sickening to me, just the way how it's effortlessly talked about Instagram followers as if that, mat- maybe it clearly does, but it, the way it matters and just and every kind of joke and stuff and the jibes about it. The, the, and a lot of that was Pace Morgan's fault because as I said earlier, he just hit the, I think Samuel summed it up brilliantly actually in his article. He said it was just a, a underarm to be funded out the ground. And that's what it was. They were just soft questions. Um, as Samuel points out, Ronaldo's never been available for interviews to the press, to us. He's never been on a pre-European match press conference to be asked questions. Um, And as Samuel kind of laid out in his piece, questions would be asked. Is, Do you think you deserve a starting spot when you've only scored three goals in, I think, is it 19, 16 games or something like that? So my overriding feeling was one of just kind of nausea of seeing all this kind of sorry affair play out on TV when I, th- I think Tenag has been right in his handling. I think he's been kind of justified. I think he's been stern, but fair, but I, I do, I could see the point of view where he has been. He's the new lad in the prison block and he's gone to the big boy and giving him a whack with the, with the dinner tray to assert his dominance. I do think there could be a bit of that because Tenag wants to assert his authority and Ronaldo is the big dog, but he hasn't done any anything Ten Hag's done. He has been completely justified in doing it. But I can see from an perspective why he could be annoyed at that. But every, you know, Ten Hag's not had to say anything this week. It's obviously there's been no pre- match press pre match press conferences. Say that three times <laughs> quick. So he's not been had to face the question. So he's not had to say anything this week, and he's just come out with his position so much stronger. And and, and, and as you say, the overall feeling. I think as a United fan, it would be sadness and maybe even anger to see such a legend. Uh, undignify himself in this way but as a neutral um, in terms of kind of a football fan it was just one of just it just felt a bit sicky, a bit a bit icky a bit sickly to me other than of course the really emotional stuff about um, the sad passing of Angel.
0: No I think that's a nice summary Dan uh, from both of you actually because obviously it's, it's been such a huge story next week it's obviously set the rumble on next week uh, that is the nature until there is a resolution and. I'll probably rumble on after that once there is a resolution to his future, such as the such as his standing in the game. It's Cristiano Ronaldo we're talking about, um. But we'll move on and, and talk about the World Cup for five minutes if we can. Just obviously England are playing on Monday afternoon. Iran and for all the listeners that don't know they're not the only team
1: I mean, players even that is as mainstream media bias well, <laughs> well if, you, if, you let us, if
2: you
0: let us get on to what I was about to say okay. Rich I was saying Rich was born and bred in Wrexham and he is obviously a fanatical Welsh fan now Rich my granddad was Welsh so I could I could qualified yeah. for Wales, if I was ever okay. good enough for football. So, my first question I was going to ask you, Rich, before getting the, the Wales perspective, because obviously they're in England's group,
1: I think you better or, 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 than... or Wales and England's group, uh, England and Wales' group, it's a very oh, difficult one to argue, isn't there it? There you
0: go, they're my my bias is coming into it. So, I was going to ask Thank you, me. from an outsider perspective, what do you think of England's chances to share, being a Welsh fan and being in the group?
1: I think, I mean, being an I, always, <laughs> I always... I do think, looking at the pathway, that there's a gr- like England don't have to be that great to get to the quarterfinals. I really don't think they have to because yeah. I think they're heavy favourites of the group. They have to be their teams in maybe not the best form, but they've got by far the best players. They're a cohesive unit, which is you know important for for tournament football. I expect them to win the group, and if they do, they play most likely maybe Ecuador or Senegal. And that's Senegal without Mane. I think that's an easy easiest win you then get to a quarterfinal, which, you know, you're only three games from winning it then. I think that isn't beyond their means. I think, in a way, England are probably suited to the fact that the media narrative ahead of this tournament seems to be more doom and gloom than blind faith and optimism. I think England fans have actually, should be quite fortuitous that they're maybe not expected to win it. I think there is obviously an expectation to to go very far, but no one's sort of talking them up as favourites. All the pre-match, pre-tournament hype seems to be on South America and almost feels like England are going under the radar a bit. They're still a fantastic, fantastic team with amazing players. And I think from England's point of view, if Southgate just doesn't stick with his favourites, who he has done in the past, and just goes on form, I think England can go at least to the semi-finals with not relative ease, but quite comfortably. And from there, who knows? I mean, tournament football is so luck of the draw and one referee decision, there's no second chances. So... I think from from an English point of view, you should be very confident of of getting to the last four, really.
0: A Wrexham going through, Rich? I was laughing at the clip. I think it was Joe Allen who ruffled someone's. Rexham go, Rexham will have be. a but job. That's <laughs> the the <laughs> Piaz have started already.
2: Disney Plus will be buzzing with
1: that. I'd you that for free. It is a Friday. A it is a Friday. But yeah, in terms of from <laughs> Wales's point of view, I think it's dangerous. I think from the Welsh point of view, we obviously want to get as far as we can. And I think Robert Earnshaw came out, or Ian Rush came out last week, rather, and said last sixteen would be success Wales. But I think Wales' success is just being in the World Cup. We haven't been in the World Cup since 1958. Like, that is ridiculous. I think from the outside media, maybe people don't follow Wales all the time. They'll be like, well, if you go out of the group, don't score any goals, that's a failure. It's disappointment, but it's not failure. We're at the World Cup. This hasn't happened for generations. But that is the success. And then that's the springboard for further success. We need to get to the stage where qualifying for tournaments is the norm. That is going to be amazing if that ever happens. We've had three out of the last four, so that's excellent. But I think from Wales' point of view, I'm not expecting us to get out of the group. I think USA and Iran are the types of team where we struggle against the most. I would always back Wales against a massive country because we up our game, we've got big game players. But I think teams who are on our sort of level, which I think the US and Iran are, I think they're really tricky to to overcome. So I'm not feeling optimistic about getting out of the group, but I won't consider it a failure if and when we don't. Going back to my mistake, it
0: would be good fun to have Rex in the group though, wouldn't it? (laughs) Paul Mullins, one of the goals, pit himself (sighs) against Harry Maguire. Uh, And if you are a Welsh United fan, uh, Rich does a podcast on Wrexham, if you are, you know, that way inclined. (laughs) What a Um, plug
1: this is. Not as one of these yet, have I? Been waiting years for a Rob Ryan Red podcast. At Rob Ryan
0: Red on Twitter, I believe. So head over there for some excellent content. Dan, back to the England angle. Um, Harry Maguire, I think that's a massive talking point heading into this tournament. Rich has just talked about, you know, picking players on form. If Southgate doesn't pick his favourite. And Maguire is definitely a Southgate favourite. He struggled the last season and a half, perhaps even two years, to be honest with United. He's not been good enough. He's lost his place now. He's probably fourth choice in that pecking order at the club. Lindelof, Martinez, Ferran ahead of him. But coming into this tournament, obviously he has made the team as expected. Would you start him in that opening game? And can you see him playing? Because you've got, I think, Ben White, John Stone. So there is other options for Southgate at this tournament.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say absolutely, and I do think absolutely, but I do think it might depend on his team because Southgate will have two kind of uh, basic formations. Against the Iran, in the Iran game, which is going to be absolutely horrific because former United assistant uh, Carlos Queiroz is in charge of Iran, <laughs> so it'll be 10 players behind the ball. It'll be one where England really are going to have to slog to break them down, and it's forecast to be 35-degree heat, so that's not going to be a great, um, exciting start, I don't think. So he can't play a back three in that game, you, you know, keep it all fingers crossed. Back. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> probably shouldn't for any of the group games. Really, Wales maybe depending on what the group's like. Come, come that final game. But Maguire, yeah, he, he, uh, more often than not, he should. He should start because you know I, I see what you're saying there about um you know you play your players in form, but I just don't think there's any chance and he is injured, so it doesn't really matter. But I really don't think there's any chance of Madison starting a game. He may come on in the last 20 minutes or some like that around game if he's fit. Um, to kind of unlock defenses, but it's about. You know, we're at the end of a cycle with Safegate since it's kind of been a, um, a kind of bastardised one due to the uh, Euros being moved and whatnot. It's not been the usual two year cycle, but you're at the end of the cycle. You're not at the point where you experiment with new players and new systems here. They've had even less time than they did at the Euros and would normally do it at a World Cup to prepare. Literally just six days or whatever it's going to be in total and most of that's been travelling and just getting used to the conditions. I can't imagine much work has been done on shape or tactics or anything like that. There's no time to do anything new or try anything drastic and completely rip up the plan and put Madison in the 10-roll and just have everything go through him. It's just not feasible. It might work for 20 minutes for him to come on. Likewise, we're kind of Grealish and whatnot to maybe unlock defence and just, he can just, you know, go on. Do, you be good for set pieces and whatnot. But for anyone who isn't a regular, and the, Madison is really the only one, and maybe Callum Wilson, of course, who haven't been regular starters who were in that side. I just don't see him playing. It's I think Luis Enrique has a, he, he came in for a bit of criticism with some of his um, squad decisions because he didn't pick certain, um, players who were playing quite well I think Ramos hasn't made it even though he's actually can't kind of found a good form for PSG at the minute and he says something along the lines of the international team isn't a reward for good club form it's it's I'm picking a team and the best team for my team and that's that's the case here is Madison is the in-form England player there's no doubt about that but he isn't in the, the team at the minute no, no one's played along he's had one cap and like a 20-minute substitute appearance whatever it is England will need to pick a team that work, knows each other, works together, and they did really well in the Euros. It's it's a kind of cool, it's not the most exciting. It's not it's not been a good year since the Euros. But as I've said previously, I don't think you can take those Nations League matches after the season into account much because everyone was bored and tired of them by then, and everyone just wanted a holiday. So it's not been a good run for England. But the Germany game just before, um, the, in the last international break or the one before, was really encouraging. Unfortunately for Maguire, that was the, probably the one time that his United form seeped into his international form. But he has, every other time, been really good for England. Likewise, with kind of similar names who may come into criticism Luke Shaw, really good in the Euros, and Raheem Sterling, obviously, um, uh, kind of showing up out of nowhere after a poor a form to really get England to that final. So I wouldn't, people are going to see their the rear ends when that team drops at 12 o'clock on Monday. And that's because it's going to be a, a variation of Sterling and Mount and Shaw and Maguire and maybe Phillips, hopefully Bellingham, Rice. It's going to be the regulars because that's what's done gets so well and there's not enough time to chop and change. But I am quietly optimistic. I'm with Rich. I don't really see why there is so much pessimism about the place. The draw, not to be one of those kind of fans, is can be favourable if they win the group. I We might even touch on other teams, but I kind of have a seeking, sneaky, suspicious Qatar will actually get out of that group. So that in the last 16... You, you'd, you'd like to think England would do okay there. I could see Denmark winning their group and if depending on their knockout, it could be them in the quarterfinals. We've seen England beat Denmark in, in, in knockout matches before. So I, I I do have England actually. Maybe it's just blind optimism and blind faith, but I do have England actually getting to the semis myself. Um, Before I do pass back to you, I don't know if you've got any um kind of, uh, kind of speech privy, but I, I did the City, the City podcast yesterday talk about the World Cup. I do think, I do just want to say, you know, this World Cup has obviously got all the kind of drawbacks against it that I don't think should go unmentioned obviously it's kind of abhorrent in its uh, conception and the treatment of migrant workers, LGBTQ plus people and any kind of dissidents is revolting and I think we are all in agreement that the World Cup shouldn't be there. I don't, I don't want to step on your toes or anything yeah, if, no, you, had a, if you had a little speech but um, yeah I don't, I don't think any conversation about it can go um, without that being mentioned.
0: Very well said. I think me and Rich obviously would both agree with that strongly. Um, Going back to that Maguire point, obviously, before you answered there, I'd actually start him. It, it, it almost seems a bit controversial saying that um, I don't think his performances were as bad as everyone made out at the last international break. He's always reserved his best form for England. He hasn't beat enough for United, of course. Um, Fantastic uh, getting to the semi finals in Russia in 2018. And he was in the player, player of the tournament or the team of the tournament, sorry, team of the tournament, not player of the tournament at the Euros. So. I'd start with going, I got some stick from my friends for saying that earlier today, and I probably will from some United fans on Twitter, of course. Um, but yeah, that's who I'd go for. Very quickly, then, gents, because we are running out of time. Um, just quickly give us your World Cup winner and a little, very, very brief summary of why. Go on, Rich. You can go first.
1: I mean, I guess you have to say Argentina. Thirty-five games unbeaten. Messi's in great form. Defense looks sorted. Got Cristian Romero and Lissandro Martinez, so they're both in form. That's always been the the criticism really of Argentina. That they're so top heavy. For once, they do look good and really well balanced. Um, yeah, it's difficult to see an, a non-European team win it. I suppose because that's not happened since 2002. So you know, two decades on, it's, it's going to be a d- big ask. But yeah, I think Argentina are probably the best suited coming to it on good form. They know their system really well. Good manager. Good. And yeah, I think they've they've got all the all the makings of a World Cup win side.
0: I'd did. i ruin with that, Dan, sorry, before you answer, I'd completely agree with Argentina. Mm. We did a sweepstake the other day and I was hoping Argentina came out. Um, mm. And Messi's been in sparkling form ahead of the tournament, which always helps. So, Dan, who would you go for?
2: Yeah, it hates to be boring, but I am in agreement. While I'd love Brazil to win for the office sweepstake, as you say, um, I wouldn't be adverse to a Brazil-Argentina final at all. Um, yeah, it's Argentina for me as well. I think, as Rich says, they've got a solid base now. I think something that's played Argentina for so long is the goalkeeper as well, but they finally got Emi Martinez there, who's a really, really dependable, safe, uh, safe pair of hands. And even so, like we talk about um, Argentina as kind of these fallen giants, and Messi's never done it in an international stage, but they've been to three, was it, a World Cup final and two Copa Americas, and if Gonzalo Higuain wasn't kind of a donkey when it got to the biggest stage, yeah. they'd have three trophies. It's not like Argentina haven't done anything since 86. They've been really good, but I think what sets them apart this time is that... A lot of the attackers that just flooded that team, your Agueros, your, your Higuain's, and a few more, Rodrigo Palacios just popped into the head for some reason. Most of them have kind of retired now and stepped out of the game. And the attack they've got now isn't quite as filled with superstars. You've got obviously the Tyro Martinez and uh, Di Maria still knocking about, but Messi is the main man now. He's, for so long, I think the for some reason, they didn't do what Barcelona did and just built the team around them. They tried fitting so many attackers in when there's only a limited amount of spots. And, and even though Messi still dragged them to Sony finals, it didn't allow them to unlock his absolute full potential. Whereas, now they've got him as the main man. They've got talented but more kind of worker-like forwards in your city, Julian Alvarez. And is probably unfortunate um, to miss out, but, you know, Thiago Almalda and a few others who aren't quite as uh, well-known or as scintillating to watch but we will do the work and let Messi do the magic and then behind that they've got a solid base so I do think it is and you know the romantic in me of England can't win it I do want to see Messi get it to to end that old Messi-Ronaldo debate once and for all <laughs> well
0: I'll dump in the the Argentina enthusiasm by saying I have read in a few articles that it might be Romero and Otamendi at centre-back mm, instead yeah. of Martinez yeah. that would be sacrilege surely well, I mean, again. I
1: remember the last World Cup when Rojo turned up match winner against Nigeria. I mean, the <laughs> World enough. Cup Fair throws enough. up some players who you think, oh, he's not very good. And then they do it. And again, that almost brings on the Maguire aspect mm. to his own head. If that's yeah. the team, that's the team they want. If that's what Scaloni wants, then that's the success you get. And to bring it all one circle, I mean, that's what Wales have said in the past. Gareth Bale said he wishes it was Wales FC. He wishes it was a club team that mm. they could play in the Prem because... They have that cohesion and love playing mm. together, and Otamendi will be a part of the past. But you got to remember when he was at City in that Centurions mm. team, he got PFA yeah. Team of the Year. Do you know I mean? He's he was used to winning good. matches? Yeah, and if you put him in a system where his flaws are compensated for, then it's not such a bad problem. And yeah, mm. I think that the the days are gone where you can sort of laugh at you know former Premier League players who haven't really cut it elsewhere. But yeah, it works for them, and I, I can't wait. It's fascinating. Mm. I think that's what excites me the most. I can't mm. really call. How it's going
2: to go. Um, you, you, you meant, sorry, Steve, just put, I know you want to get away, uh, but the, the most exciting thing I'm excited for, you mentioned Rojo there as kind of wild card. I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of look through the squads, but there are so many like old heads in this World Cup that are going to have the last <laughs> ride. Obviously, Messi Ronaldo, but um, Luis Suarez and Edison Cavani, of course, doing that's, Uruguay.
1: That's it, the game that excites me the most Uruguay yeah. Ghana rematch. Yeah. But no one's going well, to talk exactly. about it. It's like,
2: Diego Godin is in the Uruguay squad. He's coming out for one last go. Toby Alder, and Jan Vertonghen are still in the Belgian squad. Honestly, Brian Ruiz is in the Costa Rica squad. He's 37 and playing in Costa Rica, but he's dragged his corpse to a (laughs) new World Cup. I can't believe it. There's so many players.
0: Nerves enthusiasm are infectious. I wasn't excited for Monday, but now I am. Bring it on. Bring <laughs> on <to laughs> go. Go, go, go.
2: Who Costa Rica with... got? I'm, ex- I'm rooting for them now. Uh, <laughs> they're in a quite hard group. I think they're in with Spain and Germany. But, um, it should be a, it it should be a salesman, but. Nice Honestly, I was going through the squads the other day doing uh, the preview for another podcast and just seeing all the old old heads like just going just get Pepe in Portugal, like, oh, that's that's what you want. That's a sort at Mexico, it's just saw oh. that's the one thing that got me woke up fever is just seeing all these um old war horses go gearing up for one last ride of it. It's like the old outlaws going out for you know, one, one last rodeo I can't wait ah, I've got it now come on let's get on <laughs> come on let's get into it I'm looking yeah, think, to it I've got I it I think Harry,
0: Harry Kane's the youngest captain actually at the World Cup when he's 29 <laughs> um, but we will leave it there because we're all gone for another day and a half uh, so thank you very much thank you for your time Rich today
2: thank you very much for having me
0: and thank you Dan thanks for your time
2: no worries at all pal anytime
0: and thanks to the listeners if you are picking out any fruit in the supermarket across the next week make sure to back.
1: take care